This is Labor Wave Radio. It's a story about how the Irish, newly arrived in the United States, had a lot more in common with African Americans than they did with their white betters. And a lot of the Irish uh, socialist Republicans back home were encouraging them to build ties of solidarity with African Americans to fight against slavery and to resist racial chauvinism. Irish American immigrants chose instead to join this clique of white laborers. And in exchange for forswearing solidarity with black workers, they were rewarded with the wages of whiteness. Today on Labor Wave, we are dedicating an entire episode to honoring the legacy of Noel Ignatiev. Noel Ignatiev passed away on November 9, 2019 at the age of 78. He was the editor of the journals Race Trader and Hard Crackers. He was the author of the widely influential book How the Irish Became White and a prominent theoretician on whiteness and what he described as white skin privilege. The enduring slogan, Treason to Whiteness is Loyalty to Humanity, printed on the covers of Race Trader, captures the essential elements of Noel's intellectual legacy. Joining us to discuss Noel's life and his legacy is Gerard Shanahan. Gerard Shanahan is an activist, educator, and researcher. His writing, which has appeared in outlets including Jacobin, Commune, Vice, and The New Inquiry, can all be found at his website, GerardShanahan.com, which will be linked in our show notes. He is also the author of the article on the legacy of Noel Ignatiev, which can be found at Commune Magazine online, and we'll link that as well in our show notes. Our conversation explores a range of topics, including Noel's ideas on white skin privilege, but also his theoretical contributions to political strategy, such as the ideas of creative provocation, where small groups of radicals can have maximum impact on broader societal culture and change. In our episode as well, we discuss contemporary anti-racist struggles, including protests against police brutality and the significance of Colin Kaepernick's on-the-field activism in the NFL. We wrap up our conversation discussing the potential pitfalls and limitations of small groups that dedicate themselves toward insular group processes instead of outward-facing strategies for broader social change. All of our episodes are available for free online at laborwaveradio.com. And we want to remind our listeners that we are a proud sponsor of the upcoming opening space for the Radical Imagination 3 conference, which is happening April 3rd through 4th. You can find out more about this year's gathering and previous years on the website, imaginativespaces.com. All of these links will be featured in our show notes. And with that, we hope you enjoy this conversation on the life and legacy of Noel Ignatiev. Who was Noel Ignatiev and what were his most important contributions to leftist thought? So Noel Ignatiev was a lifelong revolutionary. He entered the movement in his teenage years in the mid-1950s. And 
as I tried to lay out in the article for Commune, he remained um, a revolutionary Marxist until the end, which, you know, is more than most folks from that generation can say. Knowles' major contributions to the movement, I would say, are primarily his theory of white skin privilege, which has, for better or worse, imprinted itself on contemporary leftism and even contemporary liberalism, and a host of strategic interventions that he wrote about over the years regarding the ability of small organizations or small groups to intervene uh, in labor struggles uh, and specifically pursuing a revolutionary agenda within um, a much larger political context as a minoritarian tendency. Um, and I think that some of his writing on the abolitionist movement uh, in the United States, you know, the, the, the anti-slavery abolitionist movement, really sheds a lot of light on how he thought about the possibility of small groups of dedicated radicals. Yeah, on that specifically, I was struck by the article mentioning his thoughts on the abolitionist strategy. He apparently described it as creative provocation. And in the article, you write that the biggest problem facing a small group is not how to attract the masses into its ranks, but how to best make its modest forces reverberate throughout society with maximum impact. So what did Noel believe was the way to make maximum impact as a small group? And like, how did the abolitionist strategy kind of reveal that? Well, to begin with the second part of your question, Noel would always point out that the abolitionists were never more than a small group of dedicated radicals. Slavery did not end because 51% of Americans became abolitionists. Slavery ended because of a complex um, interplay of these antagonistic forces that were spurred on in, in many points by abolitionism and specifically by the figure of John Brown, which forced the contradictions um, that were rumbling just beneath the surface of American society into the foreground. And people were no longer able to turn a blind eye to it, uh, and the state itself had to get involved. Creative provocation, as I understand it, proceeds from the premise that it's not the purpose of a small political organization to win over a majority of people to X, Y, and Z political line. Our time is better spent reading the objective conditions of the moment, identifying contradictions that are particularly uh, pronounced, and orienting ourselves to exacerbating those contradictions and creating a situation in which ordinary people have to act. What do you think Noel would say the current pronounced contradictions of society are that we should focus on in order to create these moments of creative provocation? I would say that, and I can't speak for Noel, so I'll just give you know my own answer. Um, I mean, the color line remains, you know, as as visceral and as central to American society as it did when Noel was formulating the original theories of white skin privilege, uh, based on, of course, on his reading of uh, Black Reconstruction in America, the Du Bois classic. Um, and so, to my mind, um, the movement around police shootings 
And more interestingly, even, the, it's reverberation in popular culture through the NFL athletes taking a knee. That demonstrates a particularly raw fault line that runs through American society. Now, I have a, a great uh, friend and collaborator of mine recently moved to the American South um, after living most of her life in New York City, and she attended a college sporting event you know, in one of these massive stadiums, you know, with like 10,000 people or something in a town of 10,000. Uh, and it said to me afterwards, I finally understand why the, the Kaepernick protest was such a big deal. These, Ameri- these uh, football games are saturated with patriotism and pro-law enforcement messages and all kinds of ceremonious performances of law and order uh, for him to do that in solidarity with, you know, the anonymous proletarians being gunned down in these highly segregated black neighborhoods was immensely provocative. Absolutely. So much to the extent that even, you know, the current president of the United States decides to comment on it and intervene and try to make it even more restrictive and difficult for athletes to um, express their political opinions. Yes, exactly. This is really interesting to consider in the contemporary moment, like where the contradictions most pronounced. And as you mentioned, Noel's big theoretical contribution was on the idea of white skin privilege. So I'm hoping that maybe we can deepen the conversation by learning more about what he meant by white skin privilege. And also, what did what did he mean in the journal Race Trader with the slogan, treasoned whiteness is loyalty to humanity okay i'll take this one slow because there's a lot of delicate moving parts and i don't think that i'm actually capable of doing the nuances of Noel's theory justice on this but i'll give it a shot first of all unlike a lot of people uh including people on the left today who talk about race Noel ignatius did not believe that there are different races of people In fact, a lot of his work, his historical work, if you look to how the Irish became white and some of his other historical essays about early America, emphasize the ambiguity between the so-called races which prevailed prior to the ossification of the contemporary categories of race. So Noel did not believe that there was such a thing on, on some kind of biological or ontological planes as white people. What Noel believed was that European Americans in coming to the United States likely did not consider themselves anything besides their particular nationality, religion, or even locality within the country they came from, such as Italy. You wouldn't consider yourself an Italian per se. You might be incredibly provincial in terms of how you identified. Um, and they, they did not consider themselves a part of the white race. What happened in the United States was in the, the solidification of a modern, organized, and stratified proletariat in the United States, racial distinctions, which had been baked into the country's uh, division of labor by slavery, assumed increasing importance, specifically around what uh, Noel called white skin privilege. And once again, a lot of this comes directly from Du Bois. Now, uh, if you read the, the How the Irish Became White, 
It's a story about how the Irish newly arrived in the United States um, in the 19th century, in the early parts of the 19th century, had a lot more in common with African Americans than they did with their white betters. And a lot of the Irish uh, socialist Republicans back home were encouraging them to build ties of solidarity with African Americans to fight against slavery and to resist uh, racial chauvinism. Now, Knowles' argument in that book, which is very provocative uh, historically, is that Irish American immigrants chose instead to join this clique of white laborers. And in exchange for forswearing solidarity with black workers, they were rewarded with the wages of whiteness. Now, what does this mean? At the time, it meant membership in unions. It meant the ability to do a host of jobs that were not available to black workers. It meant preferential hiring with regards to free black workers. And now what the wages of whiteness have entailed has changed a little bit over time. But from the race trader perspective, what it means to be white is no more or no less than white skin privilege. It reminds me of an article that Robin D.G. Kelly wrote shortly after the election of Donald Trump, where he specifically talked about the wages of whiteness. And just kind of paraphrase his uh, core argument, he effectively said, the current need is to expose for white people how the wages of whiteness are paltry wages. So I think what he was trying to get at is identifying how the broader capitalist society oppresses us all in uneven and different ways, but it's still an oppressive system that everybody stands to gain from by destroying it. Do you think Noel would argue similarly about what it means to be white and how to like break it down and abolish whiteness? Ironically enough, I think that Noel would have come down a little bit harder than, than Robin Kelly on that question in terms of saying that, no, actually the wages of whiteness are real. Now, in his, in, his, in his final years, some of the stuff he wrote for Hardcrackers, um, he was beginning to rethink these questions, especially with regards to just the shocking degrees of poverty, mort uh, mortality rates, suicide rates, etc., in these economically disinvested white communities. But I think that Noel's main intervention around this question typically amounted to saying, no, in fact, the white worker does benefit in the short term, and we cannot ignore this. What the white worker forfeits by taking what he called the what Noel called the poisoned bait, the poisoned bait of white privilege, right? What they forfeit is their ability to wage struggle in the medium to long term. But in the short term, when you, if you think about what most working people are concerned about in the United States today. It's not next year. It's not 10 years from now. It's immediate survival. Uh, and in the context of immediate survival, I think that white skin privilege actually does have substance to it. Uh, and so this is where it becomes more difficult, right? If we could just say that, oh, you know, this is all just, it, it's all just an illusion, right? And we actually, you know, white workers have nothing to lose but their chains, you know? It would, be, it would be easier 
Uh, in fact, Noel says a lot of places, white workers do have more to lose than their chains. They have to lose their white skin privilege. And I think that if you look at different theoretical interventions that Noel made over the years, specifically, um, I would point your listeners to a black worker, white worker. It's, it was in the STO's workplace papers. It was published as a pamphlet in its own right, and it's available on Libcom. Noel makes this argument um, in a very complex analysis of uh, what he calls the civil war within the consciousness of the white worker. But suffice it to say that if you're in a plant, if you're working in a factory where the most dangerous jobs and the shittiest jobs are reserved for the black workers, and that a, a white worker in their second year can get promoted among, uh, on top of a black worker in their 15th year, you know, um, those, the, those wages are very real. And you don't, you don't want to abstract from that because it actually, it downplays the, the magnitude of serious anti-racist practice. Yeah, it, it brings me to the question about some of the arguments you too made in Hardcrackers. So that was a journal that you and Noel Ignati have both edited. And just thinking about strategically how to confront white supremacy in a way that pays attention to the real wages of whiteness. You both write, quote, American society is a ticking time bomb and attentiveness to daily lives is absolutely essential for those who would like to imagine how to act purposefully to change the world, end quote. And so like you mentioned before, when, when folks are immediately trying to survive under capitalism, clinging to the wages of whiteness is a pretty rational response, right? And it's something that, uh, like you say, it's not just about losing the chains, there's more to lose. So why does it matter to pay attention to daily life and those struggles? And how does that help expose better strategies for addressing white supremacy? The main theoretical impetus behind that statement, I believe, comes from Noel's uh, affinity with CLR James and his, his, his that which lasted some you know fifty years, CLR James um, and his his contemporaries in you know the Johnson Forest tendency, which I think is where he did his best work, really believe that the impetus for revolutionary struggle is not going to come from some kind of prefigurative party, but is going to come from the daily activity of ordinary working people. It takes Marx's hypotheses about the uh, proletarian uh, self-activity to a fairly radical um, extent. Um, and Hardcrackers was, in many ways, a continuation of that project, to, to pay very close attention to the goings-on in the daily lives of what they call ordinary people or what what some folks in these circles call regular ass people. The wager is that beyond all the clamor of the online leftist talking heads and the, the Twitterati and the think peace industrial complex and all the rest, right, who are, you know, loudly proclaiming to speak for this, that, and the other community, there's millions of people live, just living their lives amid, you know, near cataclysmic social crises and that attention to the, the contradictions that you find in these lives is incredibly important. And this actually, you could read a lot of this back into once again, black worker, white worker, which Noel begins with a simple story. 
Um, he, ta- he talks about an act of multiracial solidarity um, in, a, in a factory where I believe he was employed, which, you know, ends with a, with, a, with a black worker installed in a job that had been previously reserved for white workers with the support of his white coworkers, and then proceeds to the next scene where a number of those same white workers participate in a racist community meeting, basically meant to, I think, preserve their autonomy from a newly elected black mayor. And so what Noel says is like, okay, let's, let's be very careful in analyzing what's going on here. Because we can't just say, oh, look at these white workers, they're poisoned by ideology. And we also can't say, oh, look, the future society exists in embryo in the workplace of solidarity being produced at the point of production, right? Which is Marxist hypothesis, right? Some, what, what's going on is actually more contradictory and more complex, and we need to take it very seriously. I just want to keep teasing out some of the strategic implications of Noel's thought and going back a little bit to the claim that small groups could execute creative provocation and like send their impact broadly through society. I'm also kind of curious what your take is when it comes to, as you mentioned in your own article, the small groups within the left's tendencies to kind of self-aggrandize their own significance and importance. Just talk a little bit about how that could even be a contradiction in and of itself. Like how do we have these small groups that maximize their impact on society, attending to daily struggles and that kind of analysis, but then also don't simply fall victim to this like strange uh, self-aggrandizement and belief that what they're doing is so radically significant and important to the broader cultural zeitgeist. I'll happily answer that as myself and not as um, some kind of medium channeling Noel. Um, <laughs> As much as I would love to do that. Sure. Um, <laughs> well, thanks for your be a, willingness. Yeah, it would be a much more interesting interview if I could. Anyway, <laughs> um, so um, I mean, I have I have fallen, you know, over the years, I have fallen in with crews who had a dramatically exaggerated sense of their own importance in the unfolding of events, um, and you know, they're they're fairly easy to make fun of, right? But I really appreciate the dedication and the sincerity that folks like that bring to political organizing. You know, I, and you know, if you, oftentimes the alternative is um, you can either roll with somebody like that who thinks that you know the flyer that they're working on is going to initiate a general strike, or you can, um, or you're stuck with these like Facebook irony lords, you know, who have never handed out a fucking flyer in their life. I, you know, if I had to choose, I would, I will go with this, with the sincere LARPers, you know, and I think that there's a way to, there's a way for a small group to maneuver in such a way that it holds open the possibility for having a big impact in the world without taking itself too seriously. And I think that actually there's a little bit of that in the, in the article about Noel's early experiences in the CP. And uh, to my mind, um, a group that's willing to consider its activity as primarily geared towards spurring events outside of it and uh, is willing to dissolve itself into a broader movement, I think that group can take itself as seriously as it wants. 
Now, as soon as a group starts to look inward, to begin to purify itself, oh, let's study the relationships of everybody in this group who are dating. Oh, let's conduct, you know, an investigation into whether this person is actually, you know, a chauvinist of this, that, and the other. You know, that's when you can basically just like go to the beach because it's over. That is a group that is admitting its irrelevance by its willingness to just completely turn inward and scrutinize itself unto death, right? But I I think a small group that maintains an outward focus um, is free and almost obligated to take itself very seriously. Yeah, I guess I just want to like, I'd like to talk more about this. Like how... Where are some of the clear pitfalls? Like, as you're mentioning, taking yourself too seriously can be like all this attention to a flyer. I've also experienced it where like people painstakingly go over a a mission statement (laughs) that won't go anywhere that, you know, takes months to even uh, draft and generate and get approval on. And then it just, and then just lingers. So it's like all these kinds of ways that we painstakingly interrogate ourselves and like we try to bring prefigured practices, I think, into our spaces. How do, how do you maneuver in a way that is more focused on the external impact versus the internal scrutiny and interrogation that happens so commonly on the left? To my mind, and once again, I'm no, I am not communing with Noel at this moment, um, I, it involves just a very serious an open-minded assessment of the objective conditions that exist outside of your tiny little group. Let's say you're a rank-and-file organization within a large union, which is what I spent the last couple of years doing uh, at the City University of New York. We had a fairly clear understanding of the terrain in which we were operating, what we were out to accomplish, Uh, the different tactics that were at our disposal, and so forth. We could evaluate our activities based upon their relative success and failure, right? Now, let's say you and your three friends who have just read Capital together are like, okay, we're going to go initiate the revolution with, and you don't even know your neighbors, you know, and you don't talk to anybody at work, or maybe you don't even have a job, you know. I mean, you're in big trouble, you know, (laughs) like there's, there's, there's no A to B connection. Um, In fact, I've like, over the years, I've come to believe that if you're in a group and the primary question that group is asking is, where do we intervene? Pack up, go home, go to the beach. There's no point for that group to exist. There should be in, in some basic answer to that question at the onset of the, the group's creation. And so that way, with actually, when you actually have real stakes, uh, when, there's a, when, when there's actual, you know, some kind of struggle, no matter how um, low stakes, right, that you can interface your work with, that prevents a lot of the pitfalls that I've seen in these, um, in these just completely rudderless organizations that just become... Um, you know, a forum for clashing egos and, you know, people just, you know, giving soliloquies about their fucking feelings, you know, and all like just real unserious middle-class crap. The other thing I experienced a lot in the spaces I participated in political organizing is um, this kind of assumption that among other goals, the, the need is to persuade everybody else of your political position as being right to politically educate the masses, to enlighten the minds of everybody 
and that with that kind of political education, you know, mass societal changes ensue. And I think it's interesting in the article, you mentioned how Noel kind of had a head-on uh, disagreement with that, writing that he apparently believed he won every argument that he's ever had, but didn't actually change a single person's mind. So what, what are the political organizing lessons that Noel's trying to convey with that statement? I'm glad you brought that up because I, that's actually one of the lessons that I cherish the most from, from knowing Noel. It comes down to the basic question of how consciousness develops. Now, you think with all of this postmodernism um, that just soaks all of our culture and all of our, even our, our uh, left political educations, you think that we would have thrown out the idea that people are won over by rational appeals made in lengthy texts. You know, that's just, it's simply not a practicable uh, method of winning people over to politics. And aside from, you know, small pockets of nerds who might dedicate all their time to studying this stuff like like me and I, I, I gather you, you know, according to this kind of conception of um, how consciousness develops, it's, it's circumstances that change people's minds, not arguments. Uh, and I think that one of the most powerful circumstances that you can um, engineer in somebody's mind um, is changing political horizons. You know, most people hate their job. Most people want to fucking kill their boss. Do they do it? No. You know, um, they say, oh, well, this is the way that the world is. Um, you know, it could be worse, you know. Now, when you provide that person with the opportunity to take collective action, right, when you see these, um, these, these movements that are, that are kicking off, God, it feels like 2010, doesn't it? These movements that are kicking off in some of the last places you'd expect, you know, pe pe people who might not have considered themselves activists or protesters or revolutionaries or whatever a couple weeks ago or, you know, taking to the streets and risking death. You know, when you, th that's how you change someone's consciousness, by providing not arguments, but a change of material circumstances that they can see in the world and that they can insert themselves into. Yeah, I take it that some of the stuff you're referring to is uh, more recently, like the wildcat strikes that teachers have been leading that um, happened in red states where, yeah, they'd be the last place you would anticipate them emerging and often against the direction of the recognized formal labor unions. Standing Rock, I feel like, was one of those moments that people that were paying attention maybe could have predicted it, but I do think the general population was not expecting that to really pop off the way it did. So, I don't know, I think it'd be interesting to hear your thoughts on where do you see some of these changing material conditions happening that might open up bigger political horizons? So I'm going to fall back on, um, once again, my, my recent experiences organizing kind of a rank and file movement in uh, the CUNY system, the City University of New York. And, uh, your listeners can look it up if they really care. It was called 7K or Strike. I was a part of a small group influenced in large part by, by Noel's old um, you know, factory organizing uh, called CUNY Struggle. And based on my analysis um, of how that struggle played out, we're in this 
almost what, what the, maybe what the EndNotes folks would have called the holding pattern, or this moment of protracted crisis that has yet to really pop off in the U.S. And the struggles that you see coming up within what we would call social reproduction, um, so you, you would say like that the, these, these teacher strikes, which are awesome, that you know, swept the so-called you know, red states. And I've seen some really exciting rank-and-file militancy by nurses in New York and here in Chicago. And to my mind, the fact that these initiatives are being taken in fields that we would call social reproduction might actually contain the key to understanding what the next you know, wave of struggles in the United States is going to look like. Because it seems like what's going on around the world even, um, and definitely in the United States with the movements against police and against prisons, um, is that the austerity regime that's been kind of holding on uh, for the last, you know, 40 or so years, you know, amid sluggish rates of profit, right? The, the, you know, the, the restructuring of capitalism that, you know, some folks call neoliberalism, this is meeting with serious challenges. And it's, it's obviously, you know, in terms of its legitimacy and possibly in its material practice, it's increasingly unable to reproduce itself. So we might actually be uh, on the verge of another wave of maybe something like Occupy uh, kicking off, you know, it's coming soon to a city near you in the United States. And I certainly hope so. I, I feel like I am ex- witnessing it as well. And I, I, I do think that uh, in the article, it's interesting to read about Knowles criticisms of the labor movement or union formation specifically. And maybe these were old school thoughts of his, maybe he changed in his later years. But what's interesting to me is I'm under the impression that actually the labor movement right now is revitalizing in a way to kind of be at the forefront of some of these real broad social movement changes. What do you think about that that assessment? I think if Noel's position on the unions changed over time, he had less use for them you know, in his later years than he did when he was writing that stuff. Um, and, you know, I'm inclined to agree with him. I'll believe it when I see it. I think that anywhere that you see a serious challenge to being posed to austerity by a so-called union, what you're actually looking at is pressure from rank-and-file workers, which was then institutionalized you know, and captured by the union bureaucracy. And so, for instance, my, my union, uh, my old union in New York City, the Professional Staff Congress, the, the union of CUNY uh, professors and staff, has done more since I've been around to actually clamp down on rank-and-file dissent than it has to fight austerity. Uh, and I think that that's a very common feature of American unions in both the public and private sector, that they have been carefully managing their own downward grind into obsolescence for a very long time. Um, And that these challenges that we're seeing now do not come from the bureaucrats. And the bureaucrats would have killed this stuff in its crib if they could. You know, um, these these same uh, CUNY these CUNY labor experts, you know, 
that that love to write books about these, you know, these radical workers movements. If they were in those unions, they would have been against them. And I think that 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 goes for the whole strata of uh, of professional, you know, labor movement organizers and you know labor theoreticians or whatever. They they hold on to this thing called the labor movement that's o- that stands over and above the class struggle. And I think that uh, what I learned from Noel and what I've practiced in my own work is you have to invert that, right? The labor movement is only as useful as it promotes the class struggle. And otherwise, it could often be an impediment. Something I'm thinking would be interesting to kind of close our conversation on is that whereas labor unions represent institutions, not necessarily leftist ones exactly, but institutions that the left can maybe claim more, you also make the point of stating that Noel himself became an institution on the left. And I really, I find that interesting. And I also find more interesting that you say it's important to criticize these institutions and to have them at the same time. So why do you feel that Noel was an institution on the left? And why do you think that that's actually a good thing that he became such an institution? Well, usually these, these projects, especially the small groups on the, the far left or ultra left, they can usually be reducible to a small group of kind of big personalities, you know, who write, they write the theory, they organize the meetings, they put the chairs away when everybody goes outside to smoke cigarettes, you know. You know, in, in political circles where you don't have these people who are just getting paid to organize and that's their job, a lot of people just kind of come and go on the wind. Um, and it takes, you know, a, a dedicated core of people to, um, to provide consistency, both theoretical consistency, but also practical consistency, showing up to every meeting, you know, oh, we, we need to have this flyer done, you know, we have this publishing deadline, you know, that, um, and, and to, to preserve a kind of clarity of purpose and clarity of vision over time. Um, and Noel was certainly this kind of person. And, you know, the, 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 the flip side to it is these people are often egomaniacs, you know. And I, what I tried to, to, to get at in that article, which was like, which was, uh, I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. When you do politics, you're dealing with people as they are, you know. So many political projects just become obsessed with what people should be like, right? And I just, when you do real, real politics, you're dealing with people as they are. So a person's strengths are also their weaknesses. Somebody who is, you know, possessed by, you know, charisma, energy, drive, willing to, you know, go all in on a project and see it through for years and years. You know, those, those same types of people usually, uh, you know, are, are these kind of big ego, you know, swashbucklers, you know, and I, I don't think that it's necessarily a bad thing. And I would even, I've started to think that you really can't even have one without the other. Okay. Well, with that, I really enjoyed this conversation. I think there's a lot here that we can keep teasing out. And I just want to thank you for being on Labor Wave and hope that we can follow up in the future with another conversation. Yeah, it's, it's my pleasure. Uh, have me on anytime. 